thinking about God's call and about the difficulties of listening or catching sight of what we're to pick up. With huge senses of this from the call of the word in creation at the beginning and, and through to what Paul describes as the spirit praying in our hearts when there are things we can't even put into words ourselves. We've just heard one of my favorite call stories. There are lots and lots of great ones in the Bible and there was a temptation when I was looking at this to look at too many. It's, this is the first mention of the disciples in, in John's Gospel. And it's actually, you see, we're in chapter one where you've begun one that begins, in the beginning was the word. So we're right at the beginning. And they're John's disciples. At the, it, it's John's there with two of his disciples. So the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was, was God and became a human being. He's there with the disciples. Look, there's the Lamb of God and Jesus is just walking past. The, the two follow. What do you want? What are you looking for? Rabbi, where are you staying? Come and see. That's it. That's it. And they go with him and they stay for the rest of the day. How long is it since you went to someone, maybe went for a cup of tea and you're still there when the sun goes down, eat together? We don't even know if they might not have stayed the night. Who knows? History doesn't tell. But the question is a poser and we can understand why they come back with another question too. And I think that's one of the reasons why this story speaks to me because we, we're uncertain about a lot of things and we test a lot of things and we worry about being deluded and we... Um, but we want to, but we're listening to. What if Jesus is saying to us now, what are you looking for? What do you want? Come and see. So classically, we tend to think of call stories as being go, follow a command. But it seems more I look at them, they're, they're invitations. They don't always go, of course they can be stay. And one of the interesting ones is Jeremiah's letter to the people of Jerusalem have been defeated and carried off in, as exile into Babylon, not telling them what he wants to hear because he says, don't think you're going to get back quickly, it's going to be 70 years. That means, probably, they're thinking, I'm not going to live to see that. And what he says is, seek the good of the city where you are, and it will be for your good. Get on with life there. So what we get here isn't, a, isn't any other command, really. It's come and see. Where are you staying? They don't want him to slip away. Don't, don't go without giving me your number. One of the two is Andrew, and he goes to find Simon Peter, the brother. I've found the Messiah. I imagine that evening, and, and words from this psalm, uh, Psalm 133 came to me when I think about it, because I think, I imagine that it's that lovely moment of the gift of coming to know and being known. 
It's like fine oil poured on your head, running down your beard and into your shirt collar. And you don't mind. Yes, they are blokes, but the women aren't very far away in this gospel. And very soon, Jesus will be asking the woman at the well to give him a drink and sending her off to tell people about him. Now, you might have been thinking, this is Simon and Andrew. Don't we know another cool story? Don't we know about them mending their nets? And Jesus comes along and says, follow me. And yes, it's the same. It's the same. And the point, as that story is told, is about the immediacy of the... Of the not necessarily... Immediacy is the word, because Mark's very keen on it, and Matthew picks it up. But it's that absolute decision to go and follow, drop what they've been doing up to then and go on. It's what that story emphasizes. This is, this is something different. Maybe it's a prequel, who knows. But this is, this is something different. Mm. And this, I think, is where I find Richard Burridge's inspired book, Four Gospels, One Jesus, really, really useful. That multi-dimensional portrait that we get and, one, and, and, and the closeness of moments. What has come to all of them just before this first call, is that John the Baptist is there. All the Gospels show us that the Jesus movement grows out of John the Gospel's movements. Luke's take, of course, is different again, and it's going to give us something slightly different about the call of this, this group. One day, Jesus was on the lake shore, and the crowd were pressing in on him. And he sees two boats, the fishermen have got out, they're washing their nets, he gets into Simon's, put out a little way, and he teaches from the boat. It's one of the lovely pictures of Jesus, isn't it, teaching from the boat? He tells Simon then afterwards, go out into the deep water, put your net down for a catch. We've been working all night and got nothing. Okay. Well, you know, they hit a shoal, don't they? And the nets are full to breaking. And Simon Peter falls down in front of Jesus. Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Don't be afraid, says Jesus. Peter sees power. And the commentaries will tell us here of the old belief, you can't see God and live. But I think there's also something simpler here and something that we can all share in. It's just not being up to it, not being adequate for the call, you know. We're not, not ready for it. Whatever it might be, the response is, I can't. And at this point, of course, I thought of another call story, one we've talked about here before, and it's that of Moses. The voice in the burning bush tells him, go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. That's all. That's all. Go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. Who am I to do that? I'm not even a good speaker, says Moses. But you see, the interesting thing here, he is the one to do it. Because deep down, it's what he wants to do. Though he doesn't know that. Because he is where he is, out in that place where he sees the burning bush near Mount Horeb. Because when he was growing up in the palace, which is where he did grow up, he became conscious of his Hebrew identity and he killed one of the slave masters who was beating one of the slaves. And he fled to save his skin. So that's the reason 
why he is the right person, because it's what he really wants. And of course, he knows Paris, palace life very well. That's another thing. And he needs to get up his courage and confront Pharaoh, and he will do it. So as we think about that, the call is not altogether something coming hitting you from left field. Although it might be a surprise if if you feel it coming on. The place of our calling, says Frederick Beekner, is where our deep joy meets the world's deep need. It might be scary, but it isn't alien. It's a call to be more fully ourselves. And it may mean, it may bring sacrifice, most, but most of the things we care about do. But not a pointless, futile sacrifice. It's the letting go of some good thing for the sake of something that's even more important to you. Now, some people have a lot of certainty about their call, and some people feel it more gently along. Everybody's experience is, is difficult when they come to the sense of what question like, what am I supposed to be doing here? What's important? And what's important now? Because it may be changing. I think, um, oddly enough, that our daydreams, you know, those rather wish fulfillment, uh, superhero, great ideas we have about how we would love to do wonderful things. Um, and, you know, we might have teenage moment, put on loud music and march around and think about it. And there's a surge of energy. And um, actually, the important thing I felt about these, these things is that, okay, we can have a laugh with God about it, but we shouldn't ignore it. Because wrapped up in what may be a lot of uh, you know, uh, irrelevant stuff. There is the core in there. Is you know to keep the gold. Look again at what the daydream is. Keep the gold and throw away the dross. So there's that kind of from ourselves those kinds of longings that are expressed in many different ways. And then there are people and events that nudge us. Scripture, of course, when we take time and sit with this, nudges us too. I think that the parables of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus tells are very, very helpful. This is Jesus the poet, Matthew 13, if you want to look at them afterwards. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid, and then in joy sold everything he had and went and bought the field. It's like a trader in search of great pearls, who finds the pearl of great price, of extreme value, and she sells everything to buy it. Now, if you're a Jungian literary critic, which I'm sure some of you are, um, you'll be thinking, yes, you know, all of these are images of the, the subconscious mind, the treasure that's buried in the ground, the, the pearl in the oyster from the bottom of the sea. Sometimes we see the call with hindsight because it was that. So it's quite, if that sort of thing speaks to you, and it does, you see, to me, it's quite good to look. There are lots of them, too many to look at today, and say, what's the one that speaks to me? Because there's something there for you in that. Whatever the parable is, 
What's the one that speaks to me? Here's one of my favorites. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in three measures of flour till all of it was raised. And it's a good one for a community, isn't it? As well as an individual. Invisible transformation from within. Like yeast making dough rise into wonderful new bread. And I like it because I'm not very brave. I'm not a campaigner. I'm really glad that there are people out there like Grissa because I'm not one of them. But together, among us, we have all kinds of callings. Listening, watching, catching it. I think one of the things, obviously, we can do is pray. And that's quite, well, you're probably better at it than I am, but I'm very good at starting out and keeping going for a little while and dropping off. And so I've found that something that helps me is to think that what we do is we bring whatever it is in our minds into the landscape of God's love and wait for it to change a little bit because we believe everything is in the landscape of God's love. And of course, as we look at the landscape, we, we move a little bit further back to the margins and see the bigger picture the city, the bay, the boat. The boat is moving. Maybe Jesus is standing in the boat. We take confidence from God's love and friendship. And notice how many of those call stories have something about hospitality. Come and see. And then there's um, Zacchaeus on the road to Jericho you know he climbs up the sycamore tree he just wants to get a look at Jesus and that's enough Jesus says come down you're having tea with me so John's John's disciples John the Baptist's disciples get the pointer from, from John the Baptist and they follow him The lamb, who is the lamb? The lamb is the one through whom God comes into the human story, offering reconciliation and new ways of being. So John, the gospel writer here, takes an old symbol associated with liberation from slavery in the Jewish tradition and uses it in a new way. This isn't an earthly lamb. It's the lamb of God. Along with the word, These are titles just to ponder. We can't pin them down. But one other thing I found when I was looking around this commentary on this was is that something that helped me. There is an old tradition in Judaism of the lamb as leader leading the flock. And when I read that, it reminded me of that lovely thing in Isaiah about the peaceable kingdom. The wolf will lie down with the lamb and a little child shall lead them. In the Lamb of God, the old idea of power and tribute sacrifice is turned upside down. It's the triumph of vulnerability, of God's self-giving love. And that's something to remember when, like Peter, we're fearful of God's call. I believe that God is calling everyone. And of course, when you start training for ministry, people ask you these awful questions, which is, why do you think you're called for this? 
Why do you think you're called to be ordained? I have to say, I think I never answered that specific one. Somehow they let me in. Um, I think of God's call as something in creation and across universes, both tenuous and all-pervasive. Creation is free. The myriad, myriad things are all on their own trajectories. I don't think there is any blueprint for creation or for you and me. I believe there is a direction of movement. Everything always relational and always recombining. Evolving consciousness, the call, the word. So at the most simple level, the call for everybody is what Micah says. Do justly, love mercy, kindness and forgiveness, mercy, and walk humbly with your God. But the call is particular too. And it, has, it goes with the grain. It helps to believe that it goes with the grain in you, in each of us. Something to do or make, a pointer towards the new way of being human, being us. Something about the way that only you can love, to love the way that only you can love, to say and do the things in the times and places that only you can do, that you need the confidence of trust and love to be able to do. Listening and watching, we're not very good at it. We need to trust more. St. Paul frankly admits, interesting coming from him of all people, that we don't know how to pray, but the Spirit prays within us. And at the end of all this, thinking about this, I began to think that the call is as much gift as request. So let's finish with Paul's prayer, which is going to be read to us now, his prayer for the church in Ephesus. And as we listen, we can make it our prayer for St. Luke's, for each other, for everything that's in our hearts.